0: Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance.
1: Hello, Economic Rockstars. This week's episode features Parviz Parvizi, co-founder of Clamor, the new audio app that allows you to sample 18 seconds of audio. Parviz and I talk about Clamor, the coffee market, and the economy of Iran. I know how much you love audio. So why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar and get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial. Interested in setting up a website? Why not choose Bluehost? Why? Because it's incredibly easy to use with one-click automatic WordPress installation. An excellent customer service. I highly recommend using Bluehost for your site. Visit economicrockstar.com forward slash resources and click on the Bluehost link to get your hosting for only $3.95 per month. That's a saving of over $2 a month with Economic Rockstar.
0: A lot of economic growth comes from decomposing things that are in one big bundle and debundling them. And actually, if you can reduce transaction costs, making those bundles available to people who really value those bundles. And we think with a tool like Clamor, where you add a social layer, your audience can now grab snippets of this interview, for example, using Clamor and share those out on Facebook, on Twitter, on email, so they become your biggest marketers. Coase flagged the question of transaction costs and being very thoughtful about transaction costs and thinking about how that's a driver for the theory of the firm, um, what justifies firms, being cognizant of them in terms of thinking about things like property rights.
1: I'm so, so thrilled to have you here today and to be speaking on the Economic Rockstar podcast, because I think it's quite essential that we have somebody like you who has an economics and a law background, and they're bringing it to a new level in terms of entrepreneurship in the technology space. And I think it's absolutely amazing to bring all that together, especially when education is heading towards that direction, audio and visual and um, thumbs up to you absolutely amazing and you're doing me personally a big favor because i'm a podcaster i've tried to figure out ways or to search for somebody or some company that could allow me to bring a soundbite of audio like a teaser and then you just popped up all over the place within the last couple of weeks and it's like this is the almost like the holy grail of (laughs) of marketing podcasts and audio
0: Thank you. Uh, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for saying that, Frank. Uh, really, really looking forward to catching up today. And, I mean, you caught right on, which is um, we just felt like there was something missing in audio, which is a social layer and really effective discovery. And we think a lot of that comes down to if you can actually take audio and shrink the unit size down to smaller bytes uh, you can get much greater velocity of sharing and discovery uh, in audio
1: and that 's something i'd love to explore in a, a little later, especially it has those economic connections like you mentioned discovery, and there's an economist called Frederick Hayek who elaborated on this type of economics and specializing you mentioned a bite size and that th- uh, ties in with adam smith's specialization of trade and this is something we as content creators or People who are in the business section who want to niche down and provide good services and content to customers in special and very detailed but specialized utilities, I suppose, if you want to put it like that way. So I, I'd love to introduce you, Parviz, to the audience. Thanks. Absolutely. Thank you. Hi, Frank Conway here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar podcast. I am so honored to have Parviz Parvizi join me today. Hi, Parviz. Welcome to the show. Hi, Frank. Pleasure to be with you. Purvis is co-founder of Clamor, a mobile app and platform making audio more social and viral. Users are calling Clamor, which features snack-sized audio clips of 18 seconds or less, the Instagram of audio, and I call it the audio Twitter. Previously, Purvis worked at McKenzie & Company, Goldman Sachs, the Federal Communications Commission, and O'Melveny & Myers. He has advised top five global media companies and mobile carriers on strategy and growth. He was a founder of McKenzie's iConsumer Research Initiative on Digital Consumer Behaviour, authoring three of the firm's 10 most downloaded media sector knowledge documents. Pervise was a Olin Law and Economics Fellow at Yale Law School. At Cornell, he majored in economics and served as president of the Cornell Economics Society while an undergraduate. Pervez holds a JD from Yale Law School and AB from Cornell. Perviz, I know you've been asked this so many times, so I'm going to skip the question but lead on to your background. The question I'm sure you get most asked is your name, (laughs) Perviz Pervizi. But you originally hail from Iran. So if there's a, a funny story you'd like to start off with, with that, or possibly how you made your way to the United States of America from Iran absolutely
0: sure um i do get asked about my name regularly it's a very simple and familiar story so parviz is a fairly common first name in iran it's a traditional name and um my great-grandfather's name was parviz and he was actually or parviz uh, you know in, in persian you'd pronounce it that way um he was a dervish actually um a sufi mystic and so he was respected in the family. And a lot of names, if you observe them there, I think like in a lot of cultures, they'll typically relate to a geography, an occupation, or someone, some person in the family's history. And so you, you look at somebody like Khomeini, for example, he was from a town called Khomein. So he was Khomeini of Khomein. And so um, with this Sufi mystic in our family background, the family took his name as the last name and made it Parvizy, which is like of Parviz, like somebody being Johnson, for example. And so that's really where the last name comes from. And the first name, it's not particularly common there to have a name that would be repetitive like that. It would be like somebody being John Johnson or William Williams, something like that. And so my parents just decided on the name Parviz, uh, partly, you know, out of respect for him, but actually had to get permission from the family, but also really just because they like the name. And so in my case, it's something that sticks out. And I always have to be nice to people because they'll definitely remember my name. So that's that's kind of the background
1: on that. Two things on that. I, I, I know in Ireland, it's very, very similar. For example, there's the name O'Sullivan. And that mm-hmm. comes from the Irish Sulawine, which means one eye. Mm. So the person who was started that tradition of the name Sullivan, he happened just to have huh. one eye. So they call them stool of wine. So that's where that came from. Yeah, and sure I suppose really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know any Sullivans? Yeah, I mean I I grew up around Boston.
0: Yeah, sure so full of Irish people, you yeah. know. Ton of Irish names, yes, in Boston. And I mean, you know, obviously in my hometown, yeah. So yeah. absolutely. That's a that's a keeper. That's a great story that because it's a amazing. fairly common name. You yeah. must have been a very um Genetically productive guy, that
1: guy with one eye. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pardon the pun. He must have been. <laughs> Would you feel that your name has benefited you? Because any study by Stephen Dudnar, if you've come across the book for Economics,
0: mm-hmm, they have sure. a
1: chapter in it whereby they say a person's name could be yeah. beneficial to them. And you want to be careful in terms of how you call your son or daughter. Mm-hmm. And you just yeah, there, it's yeah? interesting. Um, and and you know, he also cited some
0: of those studies around uh, racial discrimination that were done with the same resume. And they'd send out a name that looked African-American versus white. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. It's interesting. It, I think it, it, a lot of this stuff comes down partly to personality. Mm. And, um, uh, yeah, I think in the case of my name, it probably has benefited me on net in that I think it's memorable. I think some people would say – well, gee, does it stick out as being foreign and therefore somebody might have a bias? But I, I guess I tend to have a pretty, um, optimistic, positive disposition. So I sort of don't think that matter, that would ever really happen. I can't imagine it really. I'm sure everybody has biases. So in my case, I think it's been a, actually a ton of upside for just, it's a nice, noticeable thing. And yeah.
1: And it could be seen as a cop-out as well, because I know you are absolutely hardworking by checking you out. You have a grit and a true determination to succeed. So you just can't put it down to a name. You know, it's just one of those (laughs) novel studies, isn't it? (laughs)
0: <laughs> right. It kind of is. But uh, it, it's interesting they took the time to do it, I guess. You also asked me about my kind of journey. To, yeah. So my my family left Iran when yeah. I was quite young, as you might imagine, just from my American accent. There was a revolution and, uh, and then you know, war with Iraq. And then once both those got going, we... Uh, skedaddled out, <laughs> yeah. basically, yeah. Um, and bumped around a bit. But luckily, we're able to end up in America. And I grew up mostly in the Northeast and suburban Boston most of my life. Lovely.
1: Boston is fantastic. Yeah.
0: Yeah, 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 it sure is. Yeah.
1: Can I ask you, you're the co-founder of Clamor, this amazing app. What gave yeah. you your idea? And what is this all about?
0: It, it's interesting. So I'll just summarize Clamor and then jump into where, where, it's, where it's from. So Clamor, is really trying to address the challenge of discovery and social sharing in audio. Audio, there's a lot of amazing audio content. There are four hours a day, according to U.S. census data, where people can't actually use their eyes to consume visual media because they're engaged in other activities, the morning routine, drive time, housework. That actually adds up to four hours a day. So a lot of great content, a lot of audio-only time, but you typically look and audio, most people have a real hard time finding great new audio. Um, and also audio isn't social. And so we wanted to, we thought there was an opportunity to, to make it more social and discoverable by creating a platform that has short audio clips. We think if you shrink down the unit size of audio, you actually make it easier for people to scan and engage in new content because they're not committing to a 30-minute podcast or an hour-long podcast. They're getting chunk of it. and Also, you decompose the pieces of it. There may be interesting moments that a person might just care about some of those moments and not the whole thing. A lot of it comes down to maybe something we'll cover later, actually, with some of the insights that Smith had. A lot of economic growth comes from decomposing things that are in one big bundle and debundling them. and Actually, if you can reduce transaction costs, making those bundles available to people who really value those bundles. we built a platform that has these short 18 second or less clips that plays a continuous feed that are personalized to your interests. And you can listen to those as a power feed, but you can also click them to dive into the longer thing or share them with friends. The motivation for this came from actually really a place of personal need and personal interest. So one of my co founders and I, uh, David Silverman, we met on the very first day of law school. And we were uh, at Yale, you're put into groups of small, like 12, 13, 14 people, and you take all your classes together. And so we were in that same small group. And funny enough, his future wife was in there. So he got a great deal. He got his future (laughs) wife and his future business partner. And we both are slow readers. That's why I mentioned law school point, ironically. And so we've always gravitated toward audio because we find it efficient and we're also big self-learners. We always like to self-develop. And so audio is a really natural solution for that. You get knowledge even at times where you're driving, walking around, which is incredibly efficient. And if you're a bit of a slow reader, it's a solution. And if you can train yourself to listen at 2, 3x speed, it's especially efficient. So we've always been big users. He used to be a professional musician. We'd often exchange audio with each other in these really clunky ways. Like David would rip an audio book, put it on Dropbox, and then tell me to listen to a particular part. Or I would send him a podcast or something from NPR and say, hey, this is a really good discussion 10 minutes in. Check it out. And so it really sprung from his forehead in a conversation where he said, you know, why isn't there something that's like an audio Twitter? Why isn't there uh, an efficient way to just share great audio and really great moments in audio? And we said, you know what? That's pretty interesting. It immediately hit a scratch for us or an itch for us that it was scratching. And so we started off doing the most simple things, which is we just for each other curated 30, 40 short audio clips and put them on Dropbox for each other. He put together some music highlights, some things from audiobooks that he liked, and I did things from NPR, from The Economist. And then we just listened to them in sequence. And said, is this actually a good experience to get these short clips? Is this something that would drive me nuts or is it interesting? So without any cost, we did that on day one, uh, just a quick prototype. And we actually thought it was a great experience. Shared it with some friends, shared it with others. They thought it was a great experience. And then really from that, we started to just build out, pull together a team, continue to test the hypothesis and try to validate that it really met an interest and a need for some people. And, And then really... Built Clamor.
1: And all of this happened so quickly, even though you probably in, you've, you've just described the space that you were in prior to trying to solve a problem. But right. this is a, quite a significant movement from, I think, September you created Clamor.
0: That's right. We pulled the full team together in September. And then and David and I have been doing some prototyping and thinking and then pulled the team together, hit go. And started the, really the technology development at that time. You know, it took us through the fall and the winter. Uh, and then we launched. We did a soft launch behind a password wall in January. And then we really started our kind of public exposure just kind of late spring, early summer. And have gotten, obviously, a terrific reception. As you had mentioned, a lot of podcasters immediately jumped on. And our first target was really going after content creators, audio creators. And we thought this is something truly meaningful and useful for this group let's make sure we have a good value proposition for them and we're getting feedback from this group and then we can start growing out from there in terms of passive listeners and just the mass mass audiences
1: and you I, i'm just looking right here now it's dated friday 17th of july 2015 clamor releases future podcasting 2015 report what is right. this what is this report about and what kind of statistics or analytics can you tell us about Clamor?
0: Yeah, it was something that we thought was important to share with the community and publicly, which is we, we did a survey of podcasters. And what we wanted to do really for understanding for ourselves and making sure we were honing in on the right problems for podcasters, we decomposed podcasting into the sort of seven or eight elements of what it takes to make a podcast. So everything from the recording, the hosting, the marketing, the monetization, all the pieces that if you have a podcast, as you well know, we we chunk them out. And then we asked in a simple survey, podcasters to share their perceptions of where they were most satisfied versus dissatisfied with those aspects of podcasting. And what came out was actually podcasters are quite well served on the blocking and tackling of making podcasts. Of course, things can be better, but on things like audio recording tools, whether it's Audacity or some of the paid sources, things like hosting, they're reasonably satisfied. They're really falling down and having trouble is audience growth and monetization. Um, And monetization, we think there's just like blogs really were able to take off with AdSense being present, where you could just turn on tap monetization and you just stick AdSense on there and make money. Podcasts need something simple like that. And on growing audience, we think that's a really critical point that often can get missed because in the report, we share some of the overall data about the space and how podcasting is really having this moment right now where there's a great deal of discussion and hype around it. We did this interesting 10-year chart using Google searches and the volume of Google searches for the term podcast. And what's interesting is it peaked in 2005 for about five years, and then it started a slow climb, and it just in the past 12 months has really taken off. And so we asked the question, is podcasting about to cross the chasm from being a niche behavior in the U.S.? It's less than twenty percent of people really listen to podcasts on a monthly basis to becoming mass. Or is it just at this moment of hype where it'll fritter back down the way it did back in two thousand five? And we think the two challenges that to solve to make it really sustain to mass growth are audience growth and monetization. And audience growth really comes down to tools to be made available to podcasters to help them get the word out. Right now, a podcaster essentially is alone in getting the word out. And we think with a tool like Clamor, where you add a social layer, your audience can now grab snippets of this interview, for example, using Clamor and share those out on Facebook, on Twitter, on email. So they become your biggest marketers. And you yourself can create these snippets and people can share those. And that's how we're helping.
1: Could you see uh, possible ads, you know, the way on YouTube you might have a pop-up ad? Uh, on video content could you see maybe um, or envision clamor to be ad free or could there be like a word that might pop up at the beginning of an audio 18 second audio clip for example i have an economic rockstar podcast and the economist might come along and pay you a fee to share their ad it might be just the word the economist magazine or something like that And that might pop up at the beginning, or is that something that you prefer not to touch and just grow the company without that type of monetization on your side?
0: Yeah, you know, it's a great question. Uh, The way we're thinking, the way we think about monetization is it's an aspect of product. It's not separate from product. It's a, it's a component. And, you know, with any product that's brand new, you really want to solve the core components. And so just like we made some decisions around some aspects of the product that we said we're not going to touch initially. Um, like, for example, we're not on Android yet right now. We're no. just rolling out our web presence where we have a, we have a mobile responsive version of Clamor, but it's very bare bones as compared to the iOS app. So, you know, there you, you prioritize and you sequence. And so we just were eyes open and we said, look, if you choose a monetization model up front, That actually sets the path on where your product is headed. And we don't know enough at this point to know where this product will necessarily head. So we want to just create a great experience for users, for creators and listeners, and have them essentially give us permission over time on what kind of monetization is additive to what they do. I think ads are certainly one option. I think one thing I'd want to be thoughtful and careful with ads about is that they're not disrespectful and interruptive. I think often, especially in audio, it's as if there's just a troll who got in your way Mm -hmm. and says, pay me with your time before you can move on. And that's fine. I mean, of course, people need to be paid. But I think philosophically, uh, you build a more sustainable business if the way you get paid is a way in which all parties involved actually get value from that. So if, if we went down the ad direction, we'd really want to think hard about things like native advertising, mm-hmm. things that are integrated as you reference, and obviously things that add value for the content creator as opposed to just people put their content and we're just benefiting from it. Um, and there are other models too. There, there are premium models. For example, these clamor clips, can ha- they all have a button that you can hear more with. Well, that can lead potentially to a paid transaction. They're in-app purchases that are always Good. possible um, there's a private messaging component within clamor so you could imagine things like stickers and special yeah. emoji that people pay for so we're, we're trying to be quite broad-minded and actually your thought about the economist was a great one it's something i'll be noting after this interview we're trying to actually hear from the community and, and understand what's going to work over time
1: i'm a lecturer at third level college here in ireland and i can see cool. this actually taking off in that sector too and I'm a lot of, yeah, a lot of lectures out there. Students want these teachers and educators to record their material. A lot, a lot to ask for, I, I suppose, um, for some people who are not technically minded. But it'll eventually go this mm-hmm. way. And I'm sure Clamor is going to be fantastic in this space because if a student, say, is trying to look through and search some audio material, all the educator has to do is highlight the topic of the day. For example, Adam Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiments, Absolutely. and you're in
0: there. Absolutely. And, and you know, I'll, I'll tell you, Frank, we made Clamor an open platform. Everything's an open embeddable object. That's a lot of words. In normal terms, what that means is every Clamor can be embedded into other digital experiences. So if the teacher, for example, has a website or a Tumblr page, even, they can embed individual Clamors or channels or accounts in there. So people could just go to that web experience, play the clamor and the stream of clamors, and there's a button there, and that button launches to more audio. It can also launch another website. We create that flexibility. Mm -hmm. The default is that it launches more audio, but it can take somebody to a web landing page. Um, And it can be incredibly powerful as a way to grab summaries to make audio more accessible. Um, And we think in education, there's a huge opportunity. And you can also really, with more advanced users, uh, do things like, every mixed into a new clamor. So if you hear something that you like, you can actually pull that into a soundboard on clamor and add your own voice track on top. Or, nice. or even a music track if you want to do something interesting. Mm-hmm. So there's a collaborative creation aspect. You know, a teacher can put out a call for, you know, give me your takeaway on this chapter quickly. And mm-hmm. the students can actually collaboratively create a mashup together and you might have 15 clamors of student responses that are effectively one big audio essay. So we, I agree. There, I think there's a huge opportunity in education.
1: And, and previous guests on the Economic Rockstar podcast, they have spoken about their initiatives in terms of trying to assess students and some of them deal with Twitter. And I can see Clamor being there for next semester mm-hmm. or the next two semesters that I definitely think some lectures out there will be testing students or grading students based on their content created on Clamor. Amazing. Uh, and That's I'd cool. say I, I can't wait to hear about the next big time musician who has actually made it from clamor and that's going to happen soon because we know justin bieber did it with youtube who's going to be the clamor king well it's, it's really interesting you mentioned that we did an
0: analysis of twitter and if you look at the top 500 twitter accounts today it turns out actually 80 plus percent of them were on twitter before twitter had even 10 percent of its current audience mm. so that's fact number one which is there's a big benefit to people who are very early adopters of these mm-hmm. platforms who basically, they ha- you have to be good, but in a sense, the sort of theories around the economics of stars, right? Um, and these winner take all economics of stars tell you that fairly marginal differences lead to big differences in outcomes in these kind of winner take all economies like entertainment. So that was thing one, which was interesting. These early movers who got on and engaged on these, on the platform really win big. And then you look at a, a place like YouTube, the number one most subscribed to account on YouTube is PewDiePie. Um, <laughs> PewDiePie is a completely obscure, previously obscure guy working out of, you know, his bedroom. And so we think, yeah, of course, big brands, others come on, but all of these new platforms generate their own native stars. And that was a great observation that you had, which is who's the next in you know, music, for example. And we think there's a space for native stars to emerge on the platform. And we're obviously very excited to support that and support them.
1: Did you know that PewDiePie has an undergraduate in economics? Did he? Yeah, international cool. economics. Yeah, I must get him on the show. PewDiePie. Oh, cool. He'd be a fun
0: <laughs> guy to have. Yeah. yeah right. Uh, no, I didn't realize that at all about him. Good for him.
1: Yeah, yeah, good for him. Look where I got him.
0: <laughs> I know. It looks like those econ degrees can be useful after all, Again, yeah. um, for sure. I enjoyed mine greatly, um, Fantastic. just awesome. as, in terms of content.
1: Yeah, I'd love to actually talk about that now. I mean, sure. You've done a law economics undergrad, and you were an all-in-law and economics fellow at Yale. What brought you into yep. economics, or what interested you when it came to choosing your undergraduate degree? For me, I, I don't know why.
0: I, I've always been fascinated by what's the source of the economy being the way it is, and really Civilization being constructed, how it is. I think part of it, to if I'm going to get at it, is partly being somebody who was an immigrant to the U.S. I always had this feeling of I didn't have a lot of the tacit knowledge of, say, the country's history and politics. It just wasn't it wasn't something that my parents were very familiar with, right? So I had no point of view on the Vietnam War, but it meant nothing to me in the sense of it wasn't something that was a conversation in my home. Uh, whereas that was one of the. you know, Big political dividing lines, you know, I grew up in the 80s, so it had happened, you know, in the past 20 years before. So for me, I'd always be looking at things with these fresh eyes of why do we end up where we did or why did these outcomes happen the way they did? And economics for me felt, and so I studied history and economics as an undergrad. So history obviously is interesting for that. Economics, I was really drawn for because it got a, a micro logic, micro in particular, uh, you know, interested me. It, it, it sort of took humans at a unit level. And then you could kind of deductively get from there to the set of outcomes we have in society, whether they're purely economic outcomes or political economic outcomes. So it was a great set of explanatory tools. And, and that's really what drew me. Uh, and ultimately, one of the other big questions in my mind was, why are there these differences between countries? Why is it that you have countries that are poor, like that mm. That, that is strange. Um, and, and so economics is a way to kind of grapple that with that.
1: That's something that you're quite passionate about in terms of your earlier career before you went into uh, developed Clamor, that you were interested in economic development and emerging economies. And I, correct me if I'm wrong, you worked for Technoserve mm-hmm. where you looked at the coffee sector in Tanzania and Ethiopia. Uh, what did you bring yeah. to those countries uh, in terms of the coffee trade?
0: yeah um so it is something that I've always been again just curious and trying to understand and so right after undergraduate, I worked at McKinsey, and for me, it felt like the two sectors that seemed to really underlie economic growth because they tied to transaction costs are uh the communication sector and the financial sector uh those seemed so going in, I knew I wanted to do understand one of those, since I really knew nothing coming out of college, um, one of those two <laughs> sectors. So I I went into um, really the media and communications sector with McKinsey. And for me, that became a, a hook for understanding one aspect of what drives economic change and economic growth, which is uh, if you bring communication costs down, that reduces transaction costs, that leads to bigger markets, more specialization. And more growth. And so from there, after my first kind of couple of years, I was looking to go to a emerging or transitional economy. So I had the opportunity to go to work in the Moscow office for a year. Obviously not a developing country. That's a transition. That was a transitional economy and, and kind of understand and work there and sort of apply some of what I'd been learning in the U.S. there. And then one of my colleagues from McKinsey had gone to TechnoServe, which is a really extraordinary nonprofit. Their motto is bringing business solutions to rural poverty. So they work in emerging markets, really around things like market access and capacity building to grow entrepreneurship and grow businesses in these countries. And so I had had a couple of opportunities while I was in law school. And then later, when I went back to McKinsey after law school, I took a sabbatical and worked with TechnoServe as well. And my work ended up in the coffee sector. Uh, just being somebody in the right place at the right time. I worked in Tanzania. They had a socialist history. So they had these government boards mm-hmm. that all the coffee had to go through, um, in order to be exported. And so coffee was sold at an auction and then went out to export, which, you know, is fine for, for many reasons, including, uh, it's a good, choke point to collect taxes and governments need taxes so if it all has to go through the auction they can efficiently collect their taxes that way challenge is that um you know the coffee sector has seen large volume play- players come in particularly vietnam and brazil's always been there with these more kind of plantation style large farms and so they they drove coffee prices down africa and east africa is a region of smallholder farmers they weren't going to be able to compete at its on a, on, on price because they weren't operating really at scale. And so the move potentially over time is just to get out of coffee. But the move otherwise would be to think about going after specializing in a less competitive part, which is premium coffee, um, where they could really differentiate themselves since mm-hmm. Africa's the home of coffee and there's so much genetic diversity and high quality Arabica coffee grows there. And the challenge they faced was that they, the folks who want to buy premium coffee, folks like Teats or Starbucks in the U.S., don't want to buy it as an auction commodity. They want to lock up their source of supply, understand their source of supply, understand that it meets their standards, cut a deal with a farmer's cooperative, and then get two years' worth of supply in an auction paradigm doesn't allow for that so that set of regulations was really hindering the growth of or the transition to the ability to go after premium parts of the market and so i came in and just wrote a set of regulations that enabled the private sale of coffee in private contracts um and then, you know, pulled together the stakehold it was very much almost like a McKinsey project in the sense of being sensitive to the different stakeholders and their needs mm-hmm. and circulating it with them to get their buy-in because it actually was really raising the tide to lift all boats and ultimately Parliament passed that within sixty days, which was extraordinary. And so they they were able to 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 you to take advantage of that.
1: If Howard Schultz is listening into this podcast right now. I think for their Ethiopian blend or ta- their Tanzanian blend, they should call it the Parviz Parviz. <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely, I'm telling you, it was one of these things. I just happened to be there.
0: It was great. I was. I happened to be in law school. I, I just worked at the FCC just before that, so I saw administrative bodies and how they worked and had this familiarity with administrative law. And then suddenly, I show up in Tanzania, and it's like, oh yeah, obviously. Um, it just. It was such a nice happenstance, and um, it was such a great. Opportunity to—I think it's probably the most meaningful work I've done in terms of really impact on human beings. But you saw it. Way.
1: You saw it. Nobody else saw it. Just like the way you saw clamor. So if you weren't in the um, FCC and then happened to be in Tanzania, you know, you were there to actually make these regulations bypass the auction houses and provide this premium coffee, almost like your fair trade deals to local well, coffee the kind growers. Of thing, yeah. yeah. You spotted it yeah. and, and went for it. Well, thanks for
0: that. But yeah, it was a really fun experience. And then in Ethiopia, a project really that was ultimately generated a bunch of funding from Gates around opening up more of the coffee sector there and and things like um, bringing in financing for things like wet mills, et cetera. Um, so yeah, that, that's this side life thing I've had. Yeah, in uh, coffee. Funny enough,
1: this is like Adam Smith's theory of specialization, where and also Ricardo's theory of comparative advantage that the country yeah. should actually focus on what they're actually best at. And again, and um, you mentioned Adam Smith earlier on. Is this something that you this type of economic theory is something that really interested you?
0: Yeah, I mean, if I think of you know economists who really resonated with me i think in my brain two real giants are smith and also ronald Coase, and they actually you can kind of think of them as very complementary right so smith mm-hmm. really honed in on this issue of uh, and what, one of my takeaways at least is, is really this topic of specialization and specialization begetting growth and when you say well what allows for specialization that it's it's trade and markets. and The larger of a market you have, the more you can specialize. If you can only sell within the one square block, then you can't really specialize a lot. If you can sell globally, you can specialize greatly. And really, Coase flagged the question of transaction costs and being very thoughtful about transaction costs and thinking about how that's a driver for the theory of the firm, um, what justifies firms, being cognizant of them in terms of thinking about things like property rights. And, and transaction costs really is at the core of Smith's insight. Um, I mean, you can t- just oversimplify Smith and say markets just work, but really markets work when transaction costs are, go down. That, that's what defines a market in a sense, something that has sufficiently low transaction costs for, to enable people to interact. And so I, I feel like those two in my brain have always been linked when you're and t- are deeply linked.
1: When you're talking about this clamor is just coming through my mind, you know, is, because this is the perfect fit. You know, you're talking about transaction costs being eliminated. And that's what it is. This clamor is free for all content creators and users. You know, absolutely amazing. And it allows us to have that type of specialization that you've developed and allowed us to use that as a springboard to help us share what we've developed ourselves. And funnily enough, not funnily enough, but is it coincidental that Coase is also one of your favorite uh, economists because his theory Actually, consider the regulation of radio frequencies, and how I know broadcasters <laughs> are actually using the same frequency, and who's going to have which frequency, and it ended up having the bargaining power and those it, and the market will naturally develop, and one will end up paying the other, so wow. Yeah, no,
0: that's not lost on me. Um, I I did a bunch of uh, telecom work at McKinsey, and so I've and I've always had this kind of link to telecom and FCC, and so yeah, it is funny, and yeah, and and that is part of how we think of clamor. It's unbundling audio. Certainly, people just creating these little snippets on just directly as bespoke content is great, but also larger content unbundling that larger content, um, and making it accessible outside of its current unit size. And we think that creates great efficiencies and bring makes it more appealing to a greater audience.
1: I just want to mention one thing here. Um those who are considering doing economics or taking up economics as a specialization, have a look at PewDiePie and Pavise Pavisi and look where they are right now. <laughs> also I'd like to this is not all easy because you you'd be better to articulate this than me, but I just want to share with our listeners how I perceive or view you. And um, you were an immigrant from Iran where a revolution was taking place. And on horseback, you fleed Iran, headed to Boston, uh, somewhere along the line, you know, I don't know. It was by <laughs> We went there, we we it was... over the mountains through yeah. The Turkey. Yeah. The horses took us to Turkey. Uh, and, Turkey. Then, and, then and then yeah, from there. And then, yeah, and yeah, exactly. You were quite young. How old would you have been? About three or four years of age?
0: Yeah, that's 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 about right. We came to the U.S. when I was in kindergarten, and we spent a year outside of Iran between before coming to yeah. So about four, or something like that. Yeah.
1: America has the name for being the land of opportunity, but for immigrants, mm. it's not an easy. It's all it can be a struggle to be an, a, an immigrant there because I know I know from Irish history that a lot of Irish had emigrated to the United States and have done successfully well too. But it's all to do with hard grit and determination. And you personify that yourself because you've gone through, if you look at your bio, up to Yale, the Yale school. You went to Yale uh, with law and economics and you've worked with fantastic companies. And now you are an owner of Clamor, which is, I know, is going to do astoundingly well in years to come. And if people are only hearing about this for the first time, check it out. If you have an iOS and it'll be coming soon on Android. So would you like to Absolutely. articulate that a little bit better, or do you have any takeaway for listeners who might feel a struggle?
0: Mm, I think in terms of struggle, uh, I, you know, I thank you for painting that Horatio Alger picture. I, day to day, I don't <laughs> perceive that in the sense of, you mentioned Irish immigrants. I actually feel like I've been this incredibly lucky beneficiary of um, a, a lot of the struggles that when you read history, prior generations of immigrants went through. Um, whether it was the Irish um, and, and a lot of the discriminator or African-Americans and sort of standing on the shoulders of these giants because, you know, it's show up in America in the early 80s and have this funny name, eat funny food, have a, speak some funny language, and people were, were actually tolerant. Some of the outright discrimination that you read about historically, I think I was an incredible beneficiary of really the hard work that others had to put in to create the kind of society that while it's certainly not perfect and you see some of the stuff that, you know, some of the protests that have happened this past year that have been coming from very much a real place, I think, you know, I've definitely benefited from that. I think to advice for people who, you know, who feel like they're struggling. Yeah, I, I think a couple of things I would say are uh, one is don't don't sell yourself short in terms of where you're aiming and don't think that your starting point has to define your ending point. And that it's actually even that particularly relevant, you know, even if you aren't getting access to the very best schools, it actually doesn't take that t- that much time to catch up with hard work. You know, I was not a great writer, for example, even going into college. Um, I didn't even know enough to know that I wasn't a good writer. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Oh, wow. um, I was It was really in college that I was introduced to Strunk and White, the l- little book that is, is such a touchstone for writing. And I just read it. Uh, what and, was the book called? Uh, Strunk and white. It's called the elements of style. It's a kind of a really good old school take on how to write well. At least you, you know, recognized I, us. But it was like, you know, I was 17 and, and figured out that I'm a terrible writer. Yeah. You know, I my, I think my first paper I wrote uh, at Cornell, I got lucky, you know, in that there were people who were actually great writing instructors. I think it was like a C or something and with marked up completely, but it was fine because actually somebody was finally giving me feedback that this yeah. is this is what you're this is you're at this low bar and here's what you need to do. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, not selling yourself short and, and realizing that actually catch up doesn't take that much time if you feel like somehow you're disadvantaged or starting behind would be the biggest thing that that I would have. And, and so therefore aiming really high and exposing yourself to people and institutions and places of incredibly high standards um, is a great way to push yourself. Even if initially you're kind of a failure, I'm, I've been bad at everything I've done. For, for I failed my first driving test, for God's sake. Um, so, <laughs>
1: <laughs> me too. <laughs> yeah, it's like you fail, fail better. Mm. For those people who've never failed, who've never tried, you know, you have to meet failures and hit them head on and try and get yeah. past those. And I'm sure you've had many, many failures yourself given the entrepreneurial lifestyle, you're you're actually eating with clamor at the moment. It's pushing the ball up the hill
0: every day, and sometimes it rolls back down. And um, yeah, I mean, entrepreneurship, it's a constant kind of battle of will, in a sense, for sure. Can
1: I ask you, it's more economic and possibly political. The current Mm -hmm. negotiations or deals are going on between the United States and Iran at the moment. How do you perceive these, or do you see limitations in terms of the iranian marketplace or is this something that is going to be very very positive for iran oh yeah um wow yeah this is a great wide ranging discussion we're having um it's
0: it's interesting i mean i I think hard to tell in terms of crystal ball and i think Mm -hmm. some of the folks who are very cautious and opposed to the deal are coming from places of Good intentions and legitimate concern. it's uh, you never have a hundred percent certainty on anything in life. I, I personally tend to think, given that you know we don't we don't live in a world of mechanistic binary realities, but in a world of probabilistic outcomes, this one pushes tilts the table toward an opportunity for things like peace, more normal relations starting in Iran to focus on things like economic growth and opportunities for individuals Mm -hmm. rather than kind of some of these tired revolutionary narratives. But doesn't mean that that's what's going to happen. I tend to think it increases the probability of some of those outcomes. And so Mm -hmm. I'm optimistic, and it's better than doing nothing. And I think, you know, obviously Obama, I just didn't think he, he's a very thoughtful person. I think some of how he's articulated the case, um, you know, in his interview with The New York Times a few days ago, I think he, he articulated it quite well and quite clearly. I don't think the U.S. gives up really a lot of options. It's not as if uh, there's an agreement that the U.S. isn't going to use military force uh, if it comes to that, but it creates potentially a space for a peaceful resolution, and and ultimately, really bringing Iran into the kind of economic fold, and creating incentives for the governments to benefit from the econo- from from yeah. economic growth, growth overall yeah. for mm-hmm. for the world. So I think it'll be great. I think I think there are some real interesting things around some of this money that's going to flow in. Yes. So you know, Iran sold oil; it was frozen. The proceeds were frozen. So it's not as if there's some free transfer. This was money that belongs to the country, but it was frozen. And I think the political economy will shape that in an interesting way because a lot of folks may not realize that the country is about 70% state-dominated, the economy. And so... They
1: have such a young population as well. It's a fantastic... You have a young young population,
0: educated. Yeah. The question will be whether because so much of the economy is state dominated and it's through these things that are these conglomerates called boniads and so these boniads are sources of patronage and kind of clientelism for the state and so if a lot of this money gets filtered through these vehicles for patronage and you know economic decisions are made around things like political loyalty okay. you know it could be a wasted opportunity yeah. versus the money getting filtered through toward things that are productive investments for society. So uh, I think that part will be to be determined how the state and the political economy kind of filter in some of this money that's coming and whether essentially it's going to go toward wasteful consumption that's not tied to building capacity.
1: Many countries are transitioning at a rapid pace in terms of their knowledge base. and In Ireland, we're trying to position ourselves here to be a knowledge-based economy and I'm sure so, Iran, as well, with such a young educated population there's huge advantages here for the government that they looked at it to create a, a very technologically innovative society. yeah, if you were yeah. an economic consultant for the Irish or the Iranian or the u s government, what advice or steps would you suggest that they should implement to bring them to that level?
0: Yeah, I think it comes down to partly, you mentioned three different economies, uh, wh- where you sit in the sense of, um, I think for economies that are smaller, one thing that some of the lessons of high growth countries, certainly in East Asia, is that an export orientation is quite important because, you know, some of what we talked about earlier, you're getting exposed to global markets you can specialize in areas of knowledge i think for the u.s openness is is obviously beneficial but the u.s is one of the economies that is large enough that if it for some reason was operating in an autarkic fashion has a large enough market that a lot of the specialization you'd want to see would work but i think for a place like ireland a place like iran Uh, There's a premium toward openness and proactively building market linkages, not just openness, but thinking about things like market access, like some of the lessons from TechnoServe. Somebody somewhere has to sit there and think about, we make stuff, how do we actually sell it and who do we sell it to? That doesn't have to be a government bureaucrat, but that doesn't also just naturally happen. Um, Someone had to think through and say, you know what, I think there's an opportunity where this is the home of coffee. And there's somebody looking for super premium coffee and there are some institutions that need to link these or some some basic building blocks that need to link these. And so likewise, I think Ireland, Iran, I'd say put a premium on export orientation and market linkages. I think the other big one is obviously participation and more of society participating in the knowledge economy. And that's as much of a challenge for the U.S. not, Not as much. It's a challenge for the U.S. and it's a challenge elsewhere. In Iran, the most obvious group is women half of university graduates are women so iran isn't some ridiculous place that one might think where every woman is sheltered off and uneducated locked up in a home but it's misogynistic sexist sort of at its core some of some of the policies around what a net woman's economic rights are in terms of inheritance access to divorce and so bringing women to the same level as men and not making them second-class citizens and making them economic actors who participate equally benefit society. I think in the U.S., some of that really comes down to economically marginalized groups. And that erodes the democracy, but it also erodes economic growth. And you know, things like even just how education is funded in the country. It's funded through local taxes primarily. So if you have a wealthy community, they spend more on education for the kids than the Poorer communities. And I think that's to the detriment of society when kids in uh, less well-off communities just have fewer inputs put into them since education's kind of a, a social good.
1: Fantastic.
0: So yeah. I'd kind of think about that on the policy front for the U.S.
1: Absolutely amazing. Before we wrap up, Parviz, can I ask you just a couple of quick fire questions if you don't mind? I'll try to answer them. Try not to be biased here, but what's your favorite internet resource other than Clamor?
0: Ah, uh, Wikipedia.
1: Wikipedia. Why?
0: Well, just philosophically, I love... Clamor
1: could be the Wikipedia of
0: audio, too.
1: <laughs>
0: True, in terms of a knowledge base people putting up. So, um, because I just... I, a, it, I, I love how it's made. And then B, it's incredibly useful. I donate to Wikipedia every year. Oh. It's, it's a great resource. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's free. I mean, yeah. free.
1: I mean you're talking to somebody
0: who made his mom buy him Encyclopedia Britannica and saved up for it when I was a kid. So, I oh. love... Uh, knowledge and the fact that somebody now made knowledge freely yes. available at a level that's better than britannica blows my mind yes. um totally
1: yeah. agree totally agree favorite or recommended book
0: mm, i mean there's so many and there are
1: you probably don't one? have a chance um, to read or even an audio book
0: actually no i i can I, I consume a lot of audiobooks yeah. that 's my primary source of actually've transitioned mostly to yes. audiobooks well boy, I mean like kind of all time things to read Um, i'd say all time list definitely wealth of nations I think regardless of your spiritual views, I think mean, um, anybody sort of in living in the West should read the Bible because even if I actually think there's a lot of wisdom in it, but even if you're not a i'm not religious myself in really any way but it's deeply insightful for if that was the main thing people were reading until this century, at least. Um, it's worth knowing what was skewing their thought process. So that's a worthwhile read. <laughs> it's probably the number one thing to try reading, not even out of any religious belief. It's a social document.
1: Pervez, where can people find you? I am mostly
0: the Wizard of Oz behind our Twitter account, so at Clamor app, so you can always reach me there. You can reach me on at Parviz on Clamor, so follow me on Clamor, send me private messages on Clamor, I will respond, and yep, you know, every other outlet, you know, LinkedIn, whatever. I'm not hard to find. A name like Parviz Parvizy is not too hard to find, even in this big world with Google. So,
1: Parviz, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining yeah. me in Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. You can find all the links that Parviz mentioned in this episode on economicrockstar.com forward slash Parviz Parvizi. Parviz, you are an economic rockstar. Thank you so much for joining me on the show.
0: It's been such a pleasure, Frank, and super fun. Thank you.
1: Thanks very much, Parviz. It's been absolutely fantastic and really enjoyed it.
0: Same here. Thanks for carving out the time to do it. Great show you have. And I'm excited to help, help you grow it and see it grow.
1: Nice one. Thanks. I'm buddy. obviously
0: super biased because I love <laughs> economics. So, clamor <I,
1: laughs> so and coffee. Way to go, yes. Carvies. Thanks very yes. much and have a great evening. All the best. Thank you. Take bye. care.
0: Bye. Yeah, bye.